So, where are we? It's where. So, Sean got you in the wrong show, aren't you, Sean? Yep. <laughs> Enjoy it. Welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 12th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So where are we? It's where Sir Sean Connery worked on a milk round, where Harry Potter was conceived, and a place renowned for its smell, once known as Old Ricky. Yes, it's Edinburgh! <laughs> we are performing the show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest arts festival in the world, and our venue this afternoon is the space at Surgeons Hall, the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, with its own museum, library and archive. Designed by William Henry Playfair and completed in 1832, it's one of many category A-listed buildings in the city. During the Fringe, the space venue hosts four performance spaces and about 100 different shows. And we have an audience in the museum with us today, as the Fringe welcomes audiences of up to 400,000 people each year. So we welcome about one one hundred thousandth of that number to this show. <laughs> What's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce today's panel. Brian Ghosh and Angus Coots. Um, rather than me introduce yourself, there's a chance for you to speak maybe 15, 30 seconds about who you are and what you do. Just rather put myself put on, the on the spot yeah, there. Yeah, um, who am I questions. and what do I do? Uh, well, I'm, um, uh, I'm Brian. I am a uh, stand-up comedian and uh, software developer. Uh, I don't mix the two together. Um, I get paid well for one and not for the other. Um, <laughs> take your pick which way around that is. Thank you. And Angus. Hello, I'm Angus. I'm from Inverness. Um, and I do stand up. I tell jokes. And I, quite well, I also tour guide as well. So I know quite a lot about Edinburgh. If anyone has any questions about Edinburgh or wants recommendations for places to eat, drink, or shows to see, then I would recommend mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. And I hope you're ready now. We're going to go straight over to you, Brian, for your on this day topic. Uh, yeah, so uh, I've picked uh, the topic of um, sort of inventions and patents on or related to August the 12th. Because um, there's quite a lot there, really. There's, you know, you had the first Ford Model T in 1908 was released. Uh, in 1851, the Singer sewing machine was patented. Um, and in 1856, a patent was granted for improvements to the accordion. <laughs> Didn't say what the improvements were presumably a mute button. Um, <laughs> but the one that really caught my eye was on August 12th, 1930, when Clarence Birdseye was awarded a patent for his method of quick-freezing fish. Right. Now, there's a lot that's surprising about that. Firstly, that there's a patent for it. But secondly, he's a real person. <laughs> he's not a captain, but he's called Clarence. Um, so this patent was basically, it was for a technique that was inspired by uh, some time he'd spent with Inuits in northern Canada. He'd noticed that when you 
freeze the fish really, really quickly, it tastes much fresher when it's then cooked. Um, and really, this invention was the, the birth of the uh, frozen foods industry, to be honest. Um, so, uh, you know, it was, it was a reasonably big deal. And this guy um, invented everything in it. He invented the freezing method. He invented the packaging. He invented fish fingers, obviously. Um, though, interestingly, they weren't actually called fish fingers originally. Uh, they were called herring savouries. Um, and they were, because they were made of herring, and they were taste tested in um, Britain um, to see if people would, uh, would like it. And as a control group, kind of as a control option, they had uh, a comparatively bland product made of cod. And everyone went for the cod. <laughs> so we, as British people, essentially chose the placebo, <laughs> uh, which is good to know. Um, but yeah, anyway, so his 1930 patent um, really uh, enabled him to start producing and, and selling huge amounts of this frozen food. But weirdly, it didn't actually sell very well uh, for a long time. And I think I figured out why. The freezer wasn't invented till 1940. <laughs> the household freezer anyway. So basically, he invented how to freeze food before anyone had invented where to put it. Um, and like basically, he, he turned up, he went to the public, gave them a fish finger, and the public turned around and went, what the hell am I meant to do with that? He, think about it, he must have looked like he was coming from the future. Like, and, this, and the future is this like three-inch long, rock-hard orange slab. But, you know. And he calls it a finger. Does it have knuckles? No. Um, but yeah, fast-forwarding uh, a few decades, on August 12th, uh, 1981, um, the first personal computer was released, the IBM PC. Uh, and yes, this is the only stand-up show with that length of gap between fish fingers and computing um, that you're ever likely to see. But yeah, so this, this, was, um, this was obviously the, the birth of personal computing, which has obviously hugely shaped life ever since. And it's also... It laid the path for my, uh, my own profession. As, as I mentioned, I'm a software developer. Um, and uh, people obviously think that it, it's a weird combination, comedy and software. People wonder how I got into the, the software side of things. And it is just a normal story. I, I did maths at university, and I'm not great with people. So really, the wand chose the wizard. Um, but... So the, the IBM PC basically laid the, laid the groundwork for all of this. Um, but at the time, compared to modern computers, it was obviously incredibly low spec, right? It had 16 kilobytes of memory and an 8-bit processor. Okay, I can tell there's not many computing people in. Um, <laughs> for clarity, that's very funny. Uh, that is, all right, to, to compare to, to modern stuff, that's about the same memory that you'd find in a microwave. Um, and an 8-bit processor, so to, to explain what, um, what that means, it basically defines how, like, the, the largest number that the computer can process. Um, so it's sort of like how high the computer can count up to. And in this case, it's uh, 63, because it's 2 to the power 8 minus. You don't need to understand that, that's fine. Um, to put it into context, modern processors are 64-bit, which means they can count up to 18 quintillion which is quite a gap for 41 years. Um, and I mean, I d that, that isn't just uh, computers as well. That's anything with a modern processor in it. You can buy fridges with this in. 
quite why a fridge needs to count up to 18 quintillion, I don't know. I mean, I know you can bulk buy yogurts these days, but it's really not the same league. Um, and it's, it's one of those numbers as well, which like, it's, it's impossible to really like picture how big that is and how big that progress is. So to try, to try and do an analogy for you, if you were to take 18 quintillion um, fish fingers and lay them end to end, uh, it would be enough to reach the sun and back over five million times. Is that a helpful? I think that's a helpful analogy. Um, I mean, obviously, it goes without saying that the ones on Earth would be defrosted. Um, and, and if anything, the ones near the sun would be overdone. But I think Clarence Birds, I would like to think there's a few in the middle that would be the perfect crispy golden brown. And that's the important thing. Thank you. Thank you. You do know how you can fit your two subjects together, don't you? Fish and chips. Oh. <laughs> okay, sorry. This, this yeah. reaction... Uh, my pun shows later, sorry. I, 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 I think that reaction tells you why I didn't go down that route. That's um, <laughs> why you're the comedian and I'm still training this. Uh, okay, I'm going to do a segue piece between the panellists. Robert Southey was a poet laureate and born on this day in 1774. He's probably most famous for writing the poem After Blenheim, possibly one of the earliest anti-war poems. He was educated at Westminster School in London, where he was expelled for writing an article in The Flagellant, attributing the invention of what to the devil? And this is for the panel. <laughs> it's a difficult uh, question, I admit. It, it um, is. Yeah, the, the Flagellant, I don't know why it was called that. So, the flatulent. No, the flagellant. That's, that's uh, an important yeah, dis yeah, uh, distinction. Fresh fingers, yeah. It was the invention of flogging that he um, against. So he studied at Balliol College, Oxford, and later said of Oxford, "All I learned was a little swimming and a little boating." So of course that one. Um, with whom did he form a writing partnership, most notably in their joint composition of *The Fall of Robespierre*? published his first collection of poems in 1794. This is very special. It is, really. Yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Archer? Oh, no, so close. Uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Now, in 1794, Southey, Coleridge, and Robert Lovell and several others discussed creating a pantisocracy. Any ideas what that might be? I've literally never heard of any of these. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one, this week, isn't it? Yeah. Is it a pantisocracy? A form of government uh, only in underpants. Yeah, you think so? Maybe. So it's not. <laughs> no one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which one? It can only be one of the two, right? Yeah. That un was that underwear or not underwear? And it, it was neither really, because uh, it's, it's, it's an idealistic egalitarian community. So the clue is in the pan, in yeah. the Greek for all encompassing. Oh, we just heard pants. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one track mine. Uh, so they first considered setting this up in America and then decided on somewhere in Wales, but eventually the plan was abandoned when they couldn't agree on a location. Um, <laughs> so two choices, Wales or all of yes. America. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Um, Southey married Edith Fricker, Coleridge's sister-in-law, at St Mary Redcliffe, Bristol in 1795. The Southeys made their home at Greta Hall, same, as, same word as Greta Toonsburg, so maybe it's Greta Hall, Keswick in the Lake District, living on his tiny income, but also living there and supported by him was Sarah Coleridge, 
and her three children after Coleridge abandoned them, and the widow of poet Robert Lovell and her son. Maybe slightly easier, I don't know, but in 1799, Southey and Coleridge were invited by the Cornish scientist Humphrey Davy to inhale what? No, that isn't easy. <laughs> William? Uh, you're on the right lines. You're on the right lines. Um, <laughs> <coughs> laughing gas. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, nitrous oxide, otherwise known as laughing gas. I've done that before. <coughs> well, yeah, tell me what your experience was. Cause I'm about to say I don't know, I was absolutely hammered in a nightclub and someone gave me a balloon. Yeah. And I just threw it. It's, very, it's legal, you can do this. It's, it's bad for you, but real bad for you. Real bad for you. <laughs> but you get some buzz off it. Mm. Tips. That's it. <laughs> um, so nitrous oxide was what Davy was conducting experiments with. Other guinea pigs included the heir to the Wedgwood Pottery Empire and the future compiler of Roget's Thesaurus. <laughs> Roget, one assumes. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that one. Yes. Um, Soddy described the experience of inhaling as including a laugh which was involuntary but highly pleasurable accompanied by a thrill all through me and a tingling in my toes and fingers. Sounds like it's going a take that way, this one. Um, a sensation perfectly new and delightful. In 1808, he wrote Letters from England under the pseudonym Don Manuel Alvarez Espriela, an account of a tour supposedly from a foreigner's viewpoint. Don was critical of the disparity between the haves and have-nots in English society and he argued that a change in taxation policy would be needed to foster a greater degree of equity. So nothing's changed in the last 200 years. Then. From 1809, Southey contributed to the Quarterly Review. He'd become so well known by 1813 that he was appointed as Poet Laureate after Walter Scott refused the post. Other romantics such as Byron accused him of siding with the establishment for money and status. Now, in 1837, Southey received a letter from whom seeking his advice on some of her poems? Queen Victoria. Nice guess. No, unfortunately no. not. No. No. Uh, it was Charlotte Bronte. So he wrote back praising her talents but discouraged her from writing professionally. <laughs> saying, literature cannot be the business of a woman's life. Years later, Bronte remarked to a friend that the letter was kind and admirable a little stringent, but it did me good. As a prolific writer and commentator, Southey introduced or popularised a number of words into the English language. These include autobiography and what word beginning with Z? There's only so many. Uh, zoology. Zebra. There's not that many, is it? It was actually zombie. Oh, cool. Southey's biography of Horatio Nelson has rarely been out of print since its publication in 1813. And the final question on this topic, which I appreciate was a tough one, I'm sorry. What children's story did Southey write the original version of? Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> <laughs> this is as good as any, isn't it? Um, children's story, was it the Gruffalo? No, it was actually Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It was written by Southey. That was me doing a lot of talking, but now I'll let you talk, Angus, and you can do well on this boat on this day. Peace, thank you. Okay, so there, there was a big one. I was doing a bit of research uh, for this, and uh, there was a big one that I felt that really should be addressed. I don't know if you know this, uh, but I don't know if you guys know this. In 1914, it was August 12th when Britain declared war on Austria-Hungary, where they started the First World War. 
so I was looking at that, I was like, right, that's good, we'll do that, we'll talk about that, we'll talk about the war. The all ass of the war, the, the suffering, the, the death. Uh, my great uncle died in the war. See, it's not funny, is it? Uh, so the war's not good, the war's not good. So instead we'll talk about something else. We'll talk about art, uh, because this is an arts festival. You guys are here, are, are you guys locals, by the way? Is there is people locals, Edinburgh people in the world? Yeah. There we go, I can hear you as well. Uh, people from elsewhere, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. Cool. Well, that was obviously going to be the answer. Um, either local or not, there's no other way around, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, big arts festival happens here in Edinburgh. I live in Edinburgh um, and uh, it's exciting. Uh, I'm an artist. I do my art at the Fringe. Uh, come and see me tonight. I'll tell dick jokes in a pub attic. Um, that's essentially all it is. It's fun. Um, but it's art. It's real art. Okay? I want to talk about one of my favourite artists of all time, a guy called John Cage. You might not be familiar with John Cage, he was a composer, he wrote lots of music, lots of music, uh, but he's most famous for a piece called 433, uh, in which uh, the musician will come, say their instrument, and they will open up the music, and then they will sit for four and a half minutes, and occasionally turn a page, and that's it. Now, now people think that this is about silence, it's not about silence, okay? It's about um, the ambient noise that you hear, so when you take a moment to be quiet, um, then you might hear someone breathing, maybe someone will cough, maybe you'll hear a fan or some noise outside the back. And essentially, that's what I'm doing every time I do a show that's not going so well. <laughs> it's a piece of art, is I'll tell the joke and then we'll just enjoy the silence. <laughs> it's good, it's good. It doesn't happen very often, I'm really talented. Um, um, so yeah, he's one of my favourites and uh, I, I think... Uh, it's one of the easiest pieces to play as well, which is good so you can feel like a proper musician. I don't know if you've ever seen a full orchestra do it. Uh, it's quite incredible. <laughs> you've got an entire orchestra sitting there all turning their pages about the same time. Um, and you hear just that turn of the page. That's all you hear for the whole thing. It's great. Um, and yeah, he died in 1962 on this day. So it's not a really fun one, but uh, he is dead. Um, that's about all I really got. I mean, does anyone, have, anyone got a favourite artist? <laughs> A chatty bunch, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's just enjoy that. This is this is four minutes and thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure when you finish then because it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> you four and a half minutes. <laughs> no, we don't really. That's all. John Cage, go look him up. Thank you, Angus. So my second segue piece, uh, who was the author of the novels about the fictional spy James Bond? I think we know this one. Yes, yes. it is. Yes. Ian Fleming. Middle name? Ian. <laughs> Ian Lancaster Fleming, for those who didn't know that. I was taking a punt on Ian, Ian Fleming. Yeah, Ian, Ian Fleming, yes. <laughs> I, I, uh, his father was the MP for Henley from 1910 until his death on the Western Front in 1917, so actually leaps in the what you just chose earlier. Uh, Fleming was educated at Eton, Sandhurst, and briefly the universities of Munich and Geneva. His lifestyle at Eton brought him into conflict with his housemaster, E.V. Slater, who disapproved of what about him? He smoked. Mm, probably did. I don't think he would have disapproved of that at that time. Is he uh, an undercover agent for MI6? Mm. Well, that came kind of a bit later. Okay. Um, shall I tell you? Was he fornicating? Uh, his relations with women was one, yes. Uh, his ownership of a car, 
his hair oil and his attitude, basically. So, um, yeah. So Slater persuaded Fleming's mother to remove him from Eton a term early for a crammer course to gain entry to the Royal Military College, Sandhurst. He spent less than a year there, leaving in 1927 without gaining a commission after he contracted gonorrhea. He worked as a naval intelligence officer in World War II, and I'm going to skip that bit and move on to where he wrote his first Bond novel in 1952. Which one was it? Uh, it was Casino Royale, wasn't it? It was, yay! If there's points, you get a point, but there isn't any, so... <laughs> it was a success, with three print runs being commissioned to cope with the demand. In total, how many Bond novels did he write? 47. Wow. It was about 10 or something? 11. Well, pretty close. So, uh, and, and two collections of short stories. So, you know, kind of. That was between 1953 and 1966. Have a guess at how many actors have played Bond and in how many films has he appeared? Is it like eight actors? Ooh, very close. Seven. Seven, yep. Yeah. Are you asking? Sorry, are you asking how many, how many films Bond Ian Fleming appeared in? No, how many actors have portrayed <laughs> Bond, and in how many films has he appeared? Oh, in how many films yeah. has James Bond appeared? Yes. I see. Right, yeah. which is a very noticeably different question to how many yes. James Bond films are there. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't know that. <laughs> you go into detail. That's beyond me now. I'm not a Bond fan. I'm just. Uh, I'm just. I'm just trying to spot the yeah, trick questions. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what your answer is, to be honest. Because no, I, I mean, don't tell you what the correct answer is after you guess. I mean, that is how these things work, isn't yes. it? We've really. So, do you want to guess, or should I just tell you? I'm, I'm going to guess a number. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go left field, and I'm not going to guess an integer. Um, <laughs> Hi. Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to go more rational than that. Little joke there. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, nine and a half. <laughs> right. And what did you say again? I think 17. Oh, 27. 27. Right. True or false? Easy one. True or false? Fleming also authored Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That's true. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Came on at Christmas and I saw like a the, the, the film came on and it came on to start based on a book by Ruth Reynolds. I was like, no way. <laughs> I found that out just a few months back. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. It was written for his son Casper and first published in 1964. So, why am I talking about Fleming? Well, he died on this day in 1964, aged 56. Well, at this point, we were going to go to our third panellist, but instead we do the second half of the show. Let's go in the audience. No, no, no. no, no <laughs> she's no, not something to talk about. You're a rebel. You're a rebel. No, I like things to be under control. <laughs> <laughs> then why did you so, book him? Yeah, I don't know. It's the third time he's been on as well. Uh, so, we come to the second half of the show where we uncover some of the history of Edinburgh. As our venue today is Surgeon's Hall, it seems only fitting to explore some of the history of surgery in the city. Now, under Scots law, when was the first legal dissection of a human carried out in Scotland? Is it still a panel? Uh, um, we're going to have to take a guess, but I know it's going to be 19th century, or at least I assume it's 19th century. That's when they were doing all of the fun, fun dissections. Uh, I don't know, 1835. Early 1700s. It was 1702. Oh. <laughs> Scottish law allowed, for the purposes of anatomical research, the dissection of bodies in cases where the individual had died in prison or committed suicide. The next question you will not know, but it was going to be, what do we know about the first person to be dissected? So let me tell you. 
first person dissected was called David Miles, and he was executed on the 27th of November for incest. His sister bore his child, and the village found the corpse on the midden heap. Even though they claimed it was dead at birth, the bloke was done and hanged, and so is his sister, and authorised to be dissected. Now, no one had carried a corpse legally from the gallows to the dissecting table before. So what trade of people do you think got this job of carrying the corpses? Butchers. Butchers, of course. I guess? Uh, no clue. Uh, taxi drivers. <laughs> <laughs> sedan chair drivers. Yeah. Um, it was actually chimney sweeps. Children. Chimney sweeps. They were all children. Oh, children. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I thought you were. Oh, um, well, interestingly, they were whinging about the cost of the lead weights to hold the cloth down over the corpse as they moved it through the city in a seemly manner. Now, bearing in mind that half the city had already turned up to watch the man being executed, it seems odd to be concerned about that kind of thing. Now, I'm sorry if this gets a little bit gory as we start talking about dissection. But um, how long do you think that first dissection took, given that it was their first opportunity to have a look at the body? Uh, I reckon they were um, maverick and slapdash and did it in about 20 minutes and then went to the pub. Three days? <laughs> uh, it was actually nine days. Ooh. <coughs> now, it wasn't November, but even then. Uh, the dissecting room apparently had an open wall at the back to try and keep the body cool. Um, different medical men from the Royal College of Surgeons demonstrated upon it each day. They began with a general discourse of the body before moving on to an inspection of key organs, and I won't go into the detail. But basically all that was left was the resulting skeleton and the hands and the feet. Now, the Scottish Enlightenment in the early 19th century saw Sir James Young Simpson discover chloroform anaesthesia and Dr. Joseph Lister pioneered the use of antiseptic during surgery. Interestingly, just to interrupt you there, it was on this day. His, his, first, right. his first antiseptic um, surgery was on this day in oh. uh, 18 whatever. There we go. August 12th. I considered putting that in my thing, but I was like, that is probably going to come up in the Edinburgh section. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking that's remarkable, but it's, it's actually this is, it's only going to happen in the show, isn't it? That's why no one's yeah, mentioned it. Exactly. Because it's yeah. only coming on the 12th of August. It just occurred to me. Uh, um, so I uh, just mentioned there Sir James Young Simpson and Dr. Joseph Lister, but who was Dr. Robert Knox? He was the doctor who um, bought lots of cadavers from Birkenhead. Yes, he took them in via his students, so he didn't actually see the bodies directly, which is quite important to what we're coming to later. But yes, you've got the right guy. The head of the anatomy classes at the university? He was an influential lecturer in the University of Edinburgh's anatomy department. Now, I'll give you a bit of background about this influential man high up in Edinburgh society. So, first of all, he was remembered as a bully from the Royal High School of Edinburgh, which he attended. He thrashed his contemporaries, that's how he was remembered from school. He failed his anatomy exam and had to retake it. Um, after graduating from the university in 1814, he joined the army and was posted to Brussels to attend to the wounded from the Battle of Waterloo. By 1822, he was a key force in establishing the Museum of Anatomy and Pathology at the College of Surgeons. Knox became fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and he was involved in setting up the major anatomical school where he was famed for his gory lectures where they dissected the bodies. 
But anyway, a bit more about Knox. He was obsessed, apparently, with men's head sizes. So he went around measuring the heads of men in Glasgow and Edinburgh and discovered that Glasgow men had bigger hat sizes. Given this data, how would you interpret this from a scientific point of view? People from Glasgow are fat-headed ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad you're saying that, because if I said that with this accent... <laughs> it, pretty much, pretty much. He thought that Edinburgh people were refined in their thinking and didn't need as much brain to do that sort of stuff. So in, that's why Glasgow men get hat sizes. Uh, interestingly, uh, the, um, this has actually stayed a scientific theme for some time because I remember in the sometime in the I think mid twentieth century there was a, a rather famous uh, scientific paper um, about how, uh, or at least claiming through what turned out to be very biased data, that um, non-white people had smaller heads than white people and therefore white people were cleverer, and that actually had quite a lot of sway. For, for some time and influenced obviously a lot of institutional racism yeah. um, and was only really sort of categorically uh, disproven by someone going through and showing how biased their data was um, relatively recently in the last few decades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wish I could remember any of the details so that that doesn't sound made up but I used to work in academic publishing so I knew some stuff at least. Well, uh, interesting that you raise that because Dr Knox was also racially hostile to Highland Scots, Welsh people, and especially to Irish Celts. And he openly advocated their ethnic cleansing at the time of the Great Famine. So basically, he was a, a pretty nice chap. Mm. Now, the Judgment of Death Act of 1823 decreased the number of sentences punishable by death, just as the need to train medical students was growing. And Knox's teaching methods required a ratio of about one cadaver per student. So what logically happened when the supply of bodies could no longer keep up with demand? Grave robbing. Grave robbing. Oh, going to keep See, whenever anyone says it's grave robbing, it's not. Right? It's an Edinburgh tour guide. It's one of my rules. Right? There's a difference. Grave robbing is when you steal from the dead. right? Um, so you dig someone up, you take things like gold and jewellery, things you've been buried with, and when you're just taking the body, that's called body snatching. And it's, it seems like quite like a like technical difference, but it's quite important uh, because of the law, right? Because the law said that you got caught grave robbing, the charge was theft. If theft, you could hang. Uh, you got caught body snatching, the charge was tampering with a grave, I think, and what's happened to you then? Yes. Not much. A fine, going inside for a couple of days. So, was there a loophole where if you snatched the body, but the body still had its possessions on it? You got done with theft then. Oh, you still, so you had right. to actually get rid of all of the possessions and then just take yeah, the body. Yeah, nobody owns a dead body, so mm. uh, you couldn't be done for theft if you just took the body. That's interesting. Do you want to sit Yeah, these resurrectionists, as they were called, supplying the bodies to the people at, at Surgeon's Hall. So, given that this was quite um, a problem in, in somewhere like Edinburgh, how did rich families try to stop their relatives being exhumed? Build a mausoleum. Build a mausoleum. That's pretty expensive. Didn't they hire guards? So many of the cemeteries, <coughs> if you look around the cemeteries in Edinburgh, they had watchtowers. So literally people watching over the graveyards. Yeah. Daniel Downey, give him the credit, fellow comedian on this show a few days ago, pointed out that the phrase graveyard shift comes from that. So we've got uh, mausoleums, we've got watchtowers. Any other thoughts about how you could stop these things? Or 
Saints. Mod Saints, yeah, do you want to briefly say what that is? Yeah, you can, uh, yeah, well, metal coffin, there's a good example in the National Museum just down the street, um, which you would put the coffin into, lock it up, and then it would just be stuck there. Or you go to Greyfriars Kirkyard, which is where the little dog is, you know, the one that definitely existed. Uh, 100%. Um, you go in there and you find a big kind of cage in the ground, and you bury your loved ones in there and just leave them until they're like rotted enough. And then... um, also, they would purchase heavy stone slabs to be laid over the grave, which kind of makes sense. It just makes it harder to lift up. Incidentally, Americans who experienced something similar later in the 1800s came up with some, well, suitably American solutions. So, Philip Clover patented the coffin torpedo <laughs> in 1878 which would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when the lid of a coffin was prized open that's that's good but i was hoping coffin torpedo where the coffin was the ammunition was was the torpedo <laughs> fire the coffin <laughs> maybe there was one i don't know but uh, thomas howell patented a shell buried under the coffin and wired to it so thieves triggering it would effectively set off a landmine wouldn't the corpse be a bit of a casualty yes. if you'll pardon the. Yes. <laughs> I thought that too. One advertisement for the Howell torpedo read Sleep well, sweet angel, let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest, for above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo. <laughs> Ready to make mincemeat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. Anyway, back in Edinburgh in 1827. William Hare, an Irish immigrant, was owed £4 in rent by a fellow lodger, an army pensioner named Old Donald, and he died. Now, one of Knox's students gave Hare a tip-off that he'd be well paid if he delivered the corpse to Knox, which he did. He received £7 and 10 shillings. Mm. What happened then? It was only a matter of time if there's a... If you pay that well for corpses that you can't, and it's difficult to obtain them legally, if anything, I'm surprised more entrepreneurial uh, uh, spirits didn't start what Birkenhead did. Yeah, so they were receiving between eight and ten pound each time for uh, for fresh corpses, effectively, because they'd just been murdered. But wouldn't wouldn't you think uh, that? people get suspicious about all these bodies being supplied and, and, and they've been murdered. So how would you sort of disguise the fact that they, they've been killed? Uh, you go for low-class people. Well, that, that, that's not my idea, because that's how they, that's what they did, yeah. <laughs> Very class-conscious. But, uh, yeah, they went after people like prostitutes and addicts and homeless people. Uh, so the people are really missed, you know. That's one way of I mean, I, I suppose they were... Um, they were probably in an advantageous situation because the only people who sort of were aware that bodies kept turning up were people whose interests it was in not to ask questions. So presumably just like don't do anything that gets the police involved and you've got a business. And they very much yeah. did not shoot him in the face. They, 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 they left him intact. So that, that, that was a key thing that the method uh, that they used for killing people was suffocation. I think either that or poison was probably the, the way to go. Um, I know what you know what's coming up, Dave. Do, do, do you do. want to say it or not? I feel like we've got such a lovely question. <laughs> <laughs> you don't I, have to. I feel like I do, though. <laughs> um, I uh, 
I, I can explain how they, they killed their victims. Uh, it's a method known as burking. I explain this on my tours. I, so as a tour guide, I show people and I, I tell this story. Um, burking involved getting their victims very drunk and then using two fingers, William Burke would hold the nose shut, and with his thumb, hook the jaw shut, and hair would then lie across them. And you know, they're, they're super drunk, they're very quickly asphyxiate. Um, God, this is going to be awful. I'm going to avoid the tone so much now. But a few weeks back, I had a, an evening with a young lady. Uh, and she, there's children here. I don't know if I should do this. Um, <laughs> you don't have to. You essentially, don't. she asked me to do that to her because she thought it sounded hot. Um, so I did. Anyway, when's this podcast come out? <laughs> it's not often that you can use the word burking in the, in the conversation. <laughs> that's the thing. So. I mean, I'm just pleased um, when the two of you had that little moment. You said, oh, you know what's coming, don't you? And, and like you we, we had that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I was worried you were going to turn around and go, and he's here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> It was some night out we had, yes. Yes, um, <laughs> yes sorry about that. Um, You're um, welcome for that. Uh, the victims were usually lodgers who had been staying in their lodging house in Tanners Close in Westport, so just the far end of the grass market uh, where, where it is now. And people had been, been invited in for a night of drinking. It didn't always work because they tried to get an old Irish woman drunk, and I think they, she drank them under the table. Yeah. <laughs> They also, uh, they'd been doing one body at a time and carrying to the tea chest, but at one point they murdered two at the same time, which was later described by Burke as an old woman and a dumb boy, her grandson. So the tea chest was too small, so they used like a large barrel to put both bodies in, got it onto a cart, and then they tried to get it through the grass market. But for some reason the horse refused to go any further, so they had to then get a porter to help to carry the, the, the container. And... Um, Hare, when he got home, took his anger out on the horse and shot it dead. Seems all nice something to that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm, or, or I'm just, which is better? I don't know. Go on. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just pleased that he actually shot it instead of sort of lying it down, lying across <laughs> it. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. Oh, dear. Yeah. Burke seemed more troubled than Hare by the pair's actions. Author George McGregor wrote, "When he wakened, sometimes in fright." He would take a draught at the bottle, often to the extent of half of its contents at a time, and that induced sleep, or rather stupor. So, over a course of ten months, they murdered 16 people. What went wrong with their plan? They were receiving eight to ten pound each time they murdered someone. A lot of money. Um, wasn't one of the bodies discovered before they transported it? That's the story I've heard. So basically, because it was a lodging house... This couple um, asked if they could have a room, and uh, at the time there was uh, uh, they hadn't timed things right, so there was a body still under a bed, and it was either Burke or Hare said, oh, "Oh, yeah, you can stay, but you can't go in there just now." And this aroused their suspicions. It's a bit like arriving early to an Airbnb. You're kind of thinking, "Where am I arriving to here?" So at the first opportunity, this this couple had a look in the room, and they spotted the body, and then immediately called the police. So. Even though that happened, there was still no evidence to link Birkenhead directly to the murders of all these people. So how did it sort of turn out? How did the police manage to get around that? One one of them snitched on the other, didn't he? Exactly, yes. So Hare snitched on Burke, which meant that Hare got off scot-free, so he turned King's evidence. So what happened to Hare? People weren't very happy with him moved away. He got ushered out of town yeah, towards Dumfries. 
But because the, the court case had been so notorious, many people recognised Burke and Hare. And so Hare was recognised on the stagecoach going south. And so the, a mob were trying to sort of lynch him. So the police ushered him away, uh, spirited him away in the dead of night, and put him down on the road towards England, somewhere near Annan. And that was the last that was ever heard of him. So who knows what he got up to after that. But Burke, he was hanged for the murders on 29th of January, 1829. You know this. What happened to Burke after he was hanged? Surely he's got to have been dissected. He was dissected. Good. Yeah. Uh, due to his notoriety though it's estimated that around 25,000 people watched Burke's execution Uh, this is quite typically Edinburgh people living in the tenements overlooking the scaffold were able to make a bit of extra money by hiring out their rooms for people to get a better view receiving anything from 5 to 20 shillings each and then uh, accommodation for a stage show yeah afterwards or something probably I've got to say not much has changed exactly (laughs) on the 1st of February so uh, three days later Burke's body was publicly dissected by Professor Munro at the Anatomy Theatre in the old college building. More students arrived to see the dissection of the body than had tickets. They had tickets. <laughs> and the police had to be called to control the crowd. Thankfully, this procedure lasted just two hours rather than nine days. However, uh, true to the uh, spirit of these anatomists and dissectionists being a bit... Um, Munro decided to dip a quill into Burke's blood and write the following sentence. Not quite sure where he wrote it. This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. From hair blood is the best, Munro. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. That was another good night out, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, it does depend on the quill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. What happened to Burke's skeleton after the dissection? So... I've heard that it's still in use, and in the anatomy class in Edinburgh University, at some point, every medical student will have it wheeled in and get quizzed on what these bones are about. It's a femur or a clavicle, I don't know what bones are. Uh, I think that's I think that's still happening. It's still in use. It certainly still exists, and it's sort of yeah. intact, and it's not buried in that way. Anyone in the audience back that up? And I, I'm, I'm trying to assess the faces, and that's fine. I don't want to quick start quizzing the audience. I'm just uh, glad because when you said it's still in use, I was like, what use is yeah, there for a skeleton? Yeah. All I could think was yeah. like at Halloween, woo, but no, that is a good just use. Hang them up in the window. <laughs> There'll be an MP somewhere who has a fantasy about that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, a little notebook was bound with his skin. It's, it's so yeah. gruesome, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, comedian Susan Morrison reliably has told me that his arse cheeks were made into another much larger volume and I think she's I don't think that's true <laughs> I think it might be they've made all kinds of little things out of him like uh, this, is, this is my favourite thing about William Burke uh, there is a William Burke museum uh, in Edinburgh it's on Victoria Street uh, but halfway down it's in the Cadies and Witchery shop and it's not a great museum it's only got one artefact in it but it's a beauty one it's a little coin purse it's made out of a part of William Burke and if I tell you that you can fit a lot more in that coin purse on a warm day yeah. than you can on a cold day I think we have an idea of what part of his anatomy was to turn in a coin purse I'm, when you said that's my favourite thing about William Burke I did just think well there's not much else that's yeah. particularly favourable <laughs> <laughs> what happened to Dr Knox so not Dr Knox was a, a, a eminent member of society uh, 
Burke and Hare had been sent off or executed, but what happened to Dr. Knox, the rich prisoner, who'd received these bodies, accessory to murder, surely? He was doing it, but I don't think, I think because his students took them out, I don't think he was ever convicted. Mm. I'd assume, given that he was the rich person in this, that he got away scot-free. Yes. People regarded him with some suspicion, and they uh, politely tried to edge him out of polite society. And uh, to the point that he was—he still had to earn an income, so he was still giving anatomy classes to any students that were interested and wanted to pay. But ultimately, he had to move to London, and he died there in 1862. Um, probably the final question on this, because we're running out of time, but you guys live in Edinburgh, don't you? So how are Birkenhead commemorated in Edinburgh? It's a very nice family restaurant that you should all go to. <laughs> In the Westport, just up from where the murders took place, called the Birkenhead. So it's very, very family friendly. You should all Is it a vegetarian restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm thinking. It's, it's a strip uh, club, guys. It's a strip club. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's the name of a strip club in the Westport, in what is known as the Pubic Triangle, where there are three strip clubs uh, on the corners. You know an awful lot about this restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've done my research. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you want to know where the lodging house was, where the murders took place, it was in a street called Tanner's Close, which was demolished in 1903, and it's now occupied by Argyle House, which is the 70s building near Lady Lawson Street, as you go up through Westport on the right-hand side. Very ugly. Yes, yes, a typical 70s, 70s building, unless you're into that sort of stuff. So I did have one more question, actually. So what ultimately stopped this grave robbing stroke exhumation the wall has changed. Um, like you were not allowed to sell bodies anymore, so the market wasn't good. So universities like Richmond legally couldn't be buying them. Um, and I feel like they also changed the rule for who could be dissected. Yeah, so they, they kind of enlarged the the pool of, of bodies that they could draw. So if there are any bodies of people who died in public institutions or hospitals or workhouses where they were unacclaimed, then they could be given over dissection as well. And that created uh, 400 such bodies in Edinburgh alone in 1828. William Cobbett argued against the Anatomy Act in 1832. He said, they tell us it was necessary for science. Science? Why? Who is science for? Not for poor people. Then if it is necessary for science, let them have the bodies of the rich, for whose benefit science is cultivated. There you go. So, my final on this day piece is to mark the death of poet and artist William Blake in 1827. Here are some thoughts of his with which to end our show. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, Hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. A man can't soar too high when he flies with his own wings. And some rather more down-to-earth thoughts of his. A good local pub has much in common with a church, except that a pub is warmer and there's more conversation. <laughs> and somewhat relatedly, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. You never know what is enough until you know what is more than enough. So, yeah, let's go to the pub. <laughs> Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>